Father, we give you thanks for your kindness. Thank you that you, are, you speak to us and you nourish us and you lead us. And we pray for every word that is spoken to take root, everything that is true, and bear fruit in our lives, Father. And please give us the focus to endure even over the next few minutes that we might benefit from the things that you say. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, a good friend of mine uh, got married in London just a few weeks ago, and I was part of the groom's party, so I made the journey over. Um, some of you might know I lived in London for a little while, and so this trip I finally managed to do some of the touristy stuff I didn't get around to last time. So I, got, I went to Wimbledon for the tennis, which was quite fun, and I was spitting distance from the Royal Box. Uh, went to Frozen, the musical, which was surprisingly touching, even for a full-grown man. But the journey over there, uh, it wasn't straightforward. So on a good day, it's a 25-hour journey, assuming everything goes to plan. <clears throat> but I had a bit of a snag in my travel plans, and to cut a very long story short, uh, ended up being a 40-hour trip between here and London. So I'm not, I know I'm not the only person who's had a travel nightmare. I'm sure there are people here who have had even worse experiences flying. Uh, but my odyssey from Sydney to Sri Lanka, to Dubai, to London. In one shot, it was a personal best for me, or, or a worst, depending on how you count these things. Um, but the Lord was merciful, and I made it there in one piece, as did my luggage, which I thought was a miracle. Um, but not without a bit of toil and some help along the way, and lots of prayer. We've come to the, the final chapter of Hebrews now, and I think it's possible to feel slightly out of breath, even having made it through 13 chapters. Um, but the big message of the book is that we aren't there yet. So heaven's ahead of us, and the journey between here and there is arduous. And we know that there's a city ahead that's worth the wait, as promised. Um, but the journey, it's not a mere 40 hours. It's more likely 40 years, perhaps of pure wilderness, and perhaps even more than 40. And the journey towards that eternal rest... It's a battle through the unrest. There's a great shepherd to take us through to our heavenly home, but there's also the valley of the shadow of death in the famous words of the great psalmist. And God is encouraging us to stay the course, to watch that great shepherd ahead of us and to follow him, even when every animal instinct in us is telling us to back down because of the dangers and I think that's what the passage is about, and you'll see my summary on the handout, and it should come up on the screen. Thank you so much. Christian worship is everyday holiness, living as outcasts who side with Jesus and trusting in God's provision until we reach the city to come. So I know that's a mouthful and, and a brainful and an eyeful, so we'll step through uh, really slowly. And we'll start by looking at the last verses of chapter 12, as I think they're the lead-in for our passage today. So we'll look at chapter 12, verses 28 and 29, which should also come up on the screen. And they read, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us hold on to grace. By it we may serve God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So I think the way that our passage works today, chapter 13, is that we're being given instructions for acceptable service of God. Or because that word serve has connotations of worship, uh, we're seeing what acceptable Christian worship is. 
And so that's where we've started with point one on the handout. Christian worship is everyday holiness. Now, I'm sure the word worship conjures all sorts of images in our heads, perhaps being on our knees in prayer, maybe gathering and singing. And these are beautiful expressions of the worship of God. But the way the author of Hebrews describes, describes the worshipful life here, um, it's much more broad in verses 1 to 6. So if you have a glance, verses 1 to 6 in chapter 13, you'll see it's a lot more about the daily grind than we might imagine. Things like how we treat others, how we live out sexual lives and think about marriage, and how we relate to money. It's striking, I think, that the focus here isn't primarily on some of the Christian distinctives like mission and discipleship, though the author of Hebrews is obviously really interested in those things. The focus here is on the stuff that all humans do, and Christians are to do them worshipfully. So I got a bit bored yesterday, I made a Venn diagram for us. These are the things that verses 1 to 6 I think are about. The stuff that all humans do that Christians are going to do worshipfully. And I don't think it's that the author of Hebrews has a low view of worship. I think it's that they recognize the spirituality of the everyday Christian life. They have an integrated understanding of life as a redeemed human being who loves God and lives in Christ-like trust of him in God's creation. And I think that's one of the big takeaways from today, that it's, it's a supernatural event when we love each other well, that it's a worshipful, God-glorifying thing when we use sex in the ways that he's designed, and that it's an expression of true Christ-like faith when we're wise about money. We should spend ages talking about these things, um, but we don't have the time. So it'd be great to continue thinking about these things in your gospel teams as you meet this week. But I thought we could just spend a couple of minutes on each of these concerns. So I think the next slide might have them there. Yeah, lovely. Thank you. So first, worshipping in the everyday by loving Jesus' people. Um, I think verses 1 to 3 hang together here. So verse 1 reads, let brotherly love continue. And it's referring to that familial love that we have in Jesus with one Father, our God. And I think it's explained for us in the following verses, if that makes sense. So Christians are to keep on loving Christians, even under the heat of persecution, as the original hearers were facing. And it means being hospitable in verse 2. And it looks like remembering persecuted Christians in verse 3, if that makes sense. Uh, Verse 2 can sound a little strange, can't it? Uh, If you look with me, it says, Don't neglect to show hospitality, for by doing this some have welcomed angels as guests without knowing it. I'm sure I'm not the only one who, when they heard that, just went through a mental list of the people they've been hospitable to and thought, oh, is that an angel? It was probably that big, white, glowing guy I invited for tea over one time. No, that didn't happen. No, um, I think what seems to be in the author's mind in this moment is the famous story of Abraham from Genesis 18. He's offering, offering lavish hospitality to these three divine messengers. And if we were hearing Hebrews from start to finish, it wouldn't sound so out of the blue because we've just heard about Abraham, the man of faith, uh, just a couple of chapters back. And his hospitality was an immense act of faith within its context in Genesis. So I think the main takeaway here is to welcome traveling believers. 
And within the original reader's first century context, perhaps more specifically traveling missionaries, that one writer comments that this hospitality in the early church was a major factor in the expansion of the church. And I think it makes sense, doesn't it? So the Apostle Paul uh, didn't have Airbnb. He didn't have this suite of holiday homes across Asia Minor you could just drop in on. No, he relied on Christians and new converts taking him in. And so without hospitality, they mightn't be a gospel to the nations as we know it. You and I mightn't have heard of Jesus. So praise God for Christians who welcomed and housed him even when persecution was hot on his heels, which is what we read in Acts. And when persecution caught up to them, Paul and others like him were also thrown into jail for various periods and and harmed for their faith, which I think is where verse 3 comes in. If you look with me in verse 3, remember the prisoners as though you were in prison with them and the mistreated as though you yourselves were suffering bodily. So not only would a church under public pressure be wary of taking in traveling Christians, I think they'd be tempted to distance themselves from those who were in the iron sights of persecutors. And what's being instructed here is a true love and a deep empathy that takes initiative to serve Christians, even when it's risky. So I think the basic principles for this point are, when a Christian is met, the Christian is welcomed. And when a Christian suffers, the church holds fast to them. If we think about our context, uh, the persecution that Christians face is quite mild in most instances. And so this passage prepares us for a time when it might be daring or even dangerous to love our own. It encourages us not to give up on one another. But if you notice, it's a command to let brotherly love continue. And so it presumes a baseline expectation that we are operating as family. And isn't church family the most precious when we see that at work with one another? May that be ever increasing here at Bexley North. Moving on to living in sexual purity briefly. Um, It's one of those areas, again, that are common to all of humanity, wielded both for procreation and for pleasure. And the big difference with the Christian life is that it's shaped by our knowledge of God and it's motivated by the prospect of eternity. So that word for immoral people in verse 4, it's the word from which... The word pornography is derived too. And it was used just last chapter to describe someone like Esau who chooses up to give up eternity for immediate gratification. So that same foolishness that trades heaven for a bowl of lentils is at work in us when we choose the instant gratification of sexual sin. Conversely, isn't it beautiful to see marriage truly respected, particularly in our age. Uh, Back when I worked in finance, I had a Christian colleague, and in a context where it was very fashionable to speak ill of one's spouse in the spirit of office banter, he stood out as someone who honoured his wife with every word of her. And just in hindsight, what a beautiful, glorious witness. People knew that he was different, and they trusted that he loved Jesus. Uh, Finally, to money moving on from verses 5 and 6. And again, I'll just take a quick angle on this and then we'll move, move on. But what I wanted to say on this passage is that <clears throat> verses 5 and 6 offer a cutting insight 
into our attitudes to money. I think these verses lay our human psychology bare. So if you look with me in verse 5, your life should be free from the love of money. Be satisfied with what you have, for he himself has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. So this is the logic that I think the author is unveiling for us. Our greed comes from the basic belief that the God that we have is unreliable, that we can count on our bank balance much more than we can count on the Redeemer God. And I think the author might ask us, what's more powerful in the Christian life, a prayer or a payment? Our dissatisfaction with what we have, it comes from an insecurity about God's character, that we sort of assume he's the, the kind that overpromises and underdelivers, like ourselves and the people around us. Which is why we're met with that quote from verse uh, 6, which is from Psalm 118, that Matt really kindly read out for us earlier. That Psalm, whose refrain is, his faithful love endures forever. The author of Hebrews wants us to know at the very core of our being that God will never leave us or forsake us for any length of our journey as Christians. He will never leave you or forsake you so you can be content with what you have. He will never leave you or forsake you so you don't need to stockpile. He will never leave you or forsake you so you can be generous with what he's given you. And so in verse 6, we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? And on that note, we'll move to our second point. If you'll bring it up on the screen, please. Thank you. So Christian worship is everyday holiness, living as outcasts who side with Jesus. What can man do to me? That was that closing question of verse 6. And while we mustn't fear those who kill the body and can't kill the soul, in the words of the Lord Jesus, uh, we need to be ready for persecution. And I think verses 7 through 19 deal with the experience of the community of believers, that's you and me, together, in a world that sees our lives and at, at best is confused and at worst is outraged by the ways that we live. Our allegiance with Jesus makes us outcasts in this world. And I made another little diagram just to show the hostility between people who follow Jesus and those who don't. That language of um, an outcast might sound a little strong in our context, practically. Now, we might not feel the sting of hostility as acutely, but it gets to the heart of a spiritual reality that's really clear in Scripture from the outset. And a practical reality in much of the world where persecution of Christians is malicious and rampant. And we prayed for some of those countries earlier. So verses 1 to 6 showed us some of the worship, worshipful ways that Christians do the everyday. I think verses 7 through 19 prepare us to bear the consequences, enduring hostility from those around us. And there are two big points I'd like to take away from this, this big section, 7 to 19. First is a brief point on uh, church leaders, honouring church leaders. And the second is the call to bear Jesus' disgrace willingly. You might have noticed this section is, is topped and tailed by a mention of leaders. So there's one in verse 7 and then another in verse 17. And I think the way that it works is the first 
is talking about leaders past tense. And verse 17 is talking about the present tense leaders. The past tense leaders in verse 7 are to be remembered, if you notice that. And it's likely these were individuals who first evangelized this church into existence. So you could think of Paul in Thessalonica, pioneering in ancient times, or someone like Adoniram Judson in Myanmar in the modern age. And it seems likely that these individuals are deceased, but in living memory to the original audience. And so I understand the outcome of their lives as holding fast to Jesus until the end, perhaps even an end brought about by their faith in the Lord Jesus at the hand of persecutors. And this is the faith that you and I are to imitate. The faith of leaders who proclaimed the Jesus of verse 8. Jesus who was described in verse 8 as the same yesterday, today, and forever. And just as Jesus is unchanging, so these past leaders' message was unchanging, even when it became dangerous, even deadly to preach it. Praise the Lord for, for Christians who fear God and not man. And I often think, aren't they the most inspiring stories that we hear as Christians? And we pray that we all have that sort of Christian integrity, whether we're the leaders or those whom they lead. Uh, we'll move on briefly to the present tense leaders in verse 17. Um, let's have a look at it, shall we, in verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account, so that they can do this with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. I give thanks that we're blessed to have uh, godly and lovable leaders at Snack, um, and Josh is no exception. But if you turn up the heat and you add a bit of pressure into that church life, the dynamic can sw- swing quickly from delight to disdain if we don't watch our hearts. And perhaps some of us who have been in church environments for a long time can look back and see moments where that's rung true. Now, I'm not sure what it was like during COVID lockdowns here. I was in the UK. But I know that in London, that many Christians had serious issues with the approaches that church leaders were taking about what to do with church during lockdown and ended up with people leaving churches and many disgruntled. So just imagine if the heat was even higher and there was some serious persecution bearing down on us. So I think this passage in Hebrews needs to ring in our ears during those times. These leaders have a heavy burden that we don't bear They're going to give an account to God for each one of us. I think that's cause for trembling. And so it's in our best interest to support them and enable them to do their jobs as best as they can. We need to honour our church leaders as outcasts in a hostile world. But at the core of this passage, verses 7 to 19, is a call to bear Jesus' disgrace willingly. I'm sure that stuck out to you as you were reading through and maybe you wondered what that meant. The argument in verses 9 to 15 is complicated and it builds on imagery both from the Day of Atonement from Leviticus 16 and Jesus' crucifixion. Um, I don't know where the trash goes when the bin people come through Bexley North, um, nor do I know which colour bin is like the gross general waste one. It was red where I grew up in the hills. Is it also red here? Red. All I know is that that rubbish goes in the back of a garbage truck And then it gets taken somewhere really far away, far away from my nose, hopefully. Well, the Day of Atonement, it was a ceremony that was a bit like taking the spiritual trash out of Israel, 
far outside the gates, away from the camp, like a distant burning trash heap. But the trash was the sin of the people, a vile spiritual burden carried by animal sacrifices that were incinerated. And so isn't it amazing what we read in verse 12? Therefore Jesus also suffered outside the gate so that he might sanctify the people by his own blood. The author of Hebrews is saying that Jesus' crucifixion at Golgotha, it's the conclusive day of atonement. All of the world's offensive, putrid sin dealt with at once, born not by animals but by God in the flesh. But the emphasis here isn't on forgiveness. We've seen an emphasis of forgiveness throughout the book, but here it's on public shame. The emphasis here is on the public shame of the cross. Those within the gates, the camp of Israel, they jeer and they shake their heads at the body of Jesus, tortured and abused to death at Golgotha. And the question for the original hearers of this passage is, Will you shy away from Jesus, or are you willing to identify with him in his shame? Will you metaphorically hide inside the gates and be lost among the opponents of God, camouflage yourself in the crowds? Will you swear that you don't know Jesus for fear of man? Or will you figuratively walk outside the gates of the city and side with Jesus, share in his disgrace, and spurn the honour of humans. That's what verse 13 uh, is saying here. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing his disgrace. If we're Christians, we need to be sober-minded about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It means enmity with the world. So friendship with the world is what you're after as a human. Uh, Christianity is, is not for you. There are infinite ways to improve your earthly standing in this life, and following Jesus is not one of them. And that's because it's a life that's not made for the present city that we live for. So read with me in verse 13 again. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing his disgrace, for we do not have an enduring city here. Instead, we seek the one to come. Therefore, through him, let us continually offer up to God a sacrifice of praise that is the fruit of our lips that confess his name. So what might possess somebody to join Jesus outside the gate and bear the disgrace from the worldly city? It's because we seek the city to come, that future city of rest, unlike the present city of unrest. Who would build their hopes in a city that can be shaken and will perish? We build our hopes in the unshakable heavenly city, the one to which the Lord Jesus is leading us. A city with every tear wiped away for the Lord Jesus and his people, and honour bestowed upon those who have shared Jesus' disgrace. And that brings us to the last few verses of Hebrews um, in our last couple of minutes. And I think they go off like fireworks. And this is the final point on the handout. Uh, Christian worship is everyday holiness, living as outcasts who side with Jesus and trusting in God's provision until we reach the city to come.
Uh, we're going to spend just a moment celebrating the beautiful ending to this book. And I thought it'd be nice if we all read it together out loud in verses 20 to 21. Can we do that? Should we give it a go? Now may the God of peace, who brought up from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, with the blood of the everlasting covenant, equip you with all that is good to do his will, working in us what is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. Glory belongs to him forever and ever. Amen. Amen. It's amazing. This is a prayer, a benediction. Which is it? It's both. It's beautiful. And just a couple of quick observations as we wrap up. The God of peace. Our God is the God of peace. And not just the psychological inner peace that our culture yearns for. This is far bigger than that. This is the peace that permeates all of the creation. This is shalom. This is rest. Creation in harmony, flourishing as it should, and us in it and with it. The rest of a world no longer subject to chaos and frustration and death, but finally of perfect order and satisfaction and life. The rest that our souls yearn for. And it's found in God who embodies it and found in the city of which he is the architect to which we're headed. And so God has given us a great shepherd to take us there. Did you read that? God brought us up from the dead, our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep. And that brought up from the dead, it's not just resurrection language. This is Exodus language. It's the same verb used for God bringing Moses up out of Egypt to lead God's people into their promised rest. So as the letter ends, Jesus is no longer called our great high priest, which we might expect, though he is. Now at this point, he's the great shepherd of the sheep, appointed by God from the dead to bring us all home. So why do we keep our eyes on that great shepherd ahead of us and follow him? even when it often brings profound trouble and hostility in this life. We follow the shepherd whom God has given us to journey through the barren wilderness to our heavenly home. And so we join the author in asking God for his help in verse 21. May God equip us with all that is good to do his will, working in us what is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. Glory belongs to him forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray, shall we? The Lord is my shepherd. There is nothing I lack. He lets me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He renews my life. He leads me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even when I go through the darkest valley, I fear no danger, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Only goodness and faithful love will pursue me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord as long as I live. So, Heavenly Father, please give us the strength to endure what lies between now and when we reach our heavenly home. Then may our eyes never wander from the shepherd who loves us. Amen.